So we are about to transition into the last session of this conference, and it is Bibliography Among the Disciplines, a community, a community plenary. And this, the concept for this plenary was designed um, by two of our Mellon Fellows, um, Andras Kishiri, who is Associate Professor of English at the City College of New York, and Marissa Nicosia, who is right there, uh, who is Assistant Professor of Renaissance Literature at Pennsylvania State University, Abingdon College. Marissa and Andras um, modeled this on a presentation that was made at Sharp, um, and this is designed really to engage the whole room. I will let them explain how it will unfold, um, but um, we're grateful to them for making this possible. Thank you all for staying till Sunday to participate in this final community plenary. Um, so to start, I want to acknowledge that today we gather here on Lenape lands to have this conversation about our community and the future of bibliography among the disciplines beyond this conference. Um, and I'd like to thank the organizers of Sharp's 20, Sharp 2013's Guerrilla Plenary, which was the inspiration for um, a gathering that would really bring the community together for a conversation. And I would be remiss if I didn't thank, at the very beginning of this gathering, Donna C., Barbara Heritage, Claire Rieger, and Jeremy Dibble for the exceptional job that they have done um, organizing this conference. So let's give it a Just a couple of words about um, what we are going to do here. So we thought that <clears throat> this panel would serve as a semi-formal reflection on um, what we heard at the conference. We asked uh, five participants to offer short remarks on what they thought were some of the things that stood out to them um, intellectually in terms of disciplinary formations, about the politics of the field, um, and after their, uh, the, the, the remarks they prepared, uh, we're going to continue with a, a conversation across the room um, in the kind of broad Q&A or comment and comment back format. Um, so we're going to introduce our invited speakers up front, um, and then they'll say their name again before they begin their short remarks so you know who's talking. So our first panelist is Megan Doherty. She's a director and curator of the Doris Ullman Galleries and an assistant professor of art history at Berea College in Berea, Kentucky. Her research focuses on the connections between art and science as seen in the visual culture of the early Royal Society of London and her current book project, Carving Knowledge, features studies of primary visual and written materials related to Hooke's micrographia, Francis Willoughby's ornithology, and the philosophical transactions of the Royal Society. Isabel Hofmeyer is professor of African literature at the University of the Witwatersrand, Johannesburg, and global distinguished professor at NYU. Her recent books include Gandhi's Printing Press, Experiments in Slow Reading, 2013, and 10 books that shaped the British Empire, Creating an Imperial Commons, 2015. 
Han Sung Shum is at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science, and his work combines the methods from book history and the history of science to address fundamental problems in the global history of knowledge. His research to date has focused on shifting print networks between East Asia and Western Europe, circa 1750 to 1900. In addition to a manuscript, Learn Anything, Cheap Pedagogical Print and the Education of the Modern World, he is at work editing a volume on the role of compression as a virtue in communications and information management systems, as well as a second monograph project on the prehistory of stock image banks. Alexia Hudson-Ward is the Azariah Smith Root Director of Libraries for Oberlin College and Conservatory, one of the nation's leading liberal arts academic library systems. Prior to assuming this role in July 2016, she was a tenured associate librarian at Penn State University Libraries based at the Abington College in Abington, Pennsylvania. Her librarianship philosophy rests upon the principles of accessibility, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Her, profession, uh, her professional points of pride include providing leadership in leveraging library resources to enhance and foster new pedagogies, strategic, strategic planning and organizational design, and educational technology deployment. And last but not least, Matthew Kirschenbaum is professor of English at the University of Maryland, where he also directs the Graduate Certificate in Digital Studies. At Rare Book School, he co-teaches the course Born Digital Materials in Special Collections. His most recent book is Track Changes, A Literary History of Word Processing, published in 2016 by Harvard University Press. Please join me in welcoming our panelists. And the first speaker is Megan Doherty. It seems only right at a conference about books to go in alphabetical order, and here I am at the beginning of the alphabet. Um, I wanted to, I've been thinking a lot about what communities I represent as, as being a, a part of this, and um, it strikes me there's two in particular that I want to talk about. Um, those of us who are at small colleges in far-flung places, and those of us who are charged with the care and display of objects as a primary part of our work in the academy. And um, I was very struck yesterday by Cincinnati's comments about how we need to be more public-facing and bring our, our sort of love and enthusiasm for bibliography to the masses. And um, the ways that I do that um, at a small college in rural Kentucky where 80% um, of our students are first-generation college. I mean, I have a very particular demographic that, that I serve every day and um, thinking about where do we go from here in, in some practical ways is how I want to use my time today. And my experience of the Rare Book School community has always been one of enthusiasts that there's um, a great love and um, enthusiasm for bookish things, however we might define that. And what I always try to reflect on as I'm leaving a, a Rare Book School event is how do I capture some of that enthusiasm? How do I bring that back with me to my daily life where, you know, I have three titles, I don't have any staff, you know, there are all these like exigencies that, that exist in the real world, and then there's the enthusiasm that exists in the rare book school world. And the 
I just wanted to give sort of a concrete example of, of how I do that and how I think we can all do that with our students and um, sort of bringing that enthusiasm through the curatorial process and finding ways on your own campuses and your own situations of doing exhibitions with objects, whatever they may be, right? I mean, I put up a print of a squirrel, the Berea College squirrel. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> the student was so thrilled to put up a print of the Berea College squirrel because there's so much, like, mythology about these stupid squirrels on our campus and how, like, you know, you can't, they're, like, there's this sense that you cannot harm the squirrels, like, that there are rules at the college about this, like, None of which, it's all urban legend, but um, to put that print up in the kind of entryway of the library alongside sort of Amsterdam reprints of Audubon prints and you know, quarto editions of Audubon and bringing all these materials together and giving students the opportunity, the chance to sort of make those choices, right? What should be in this exhibition? I've given you a theme. Audubon in context, right? That's all kinds of things. Um, but presenting them with a grouping of objects and allowing them to choose what they display and then putting their names on the labels, right? That this is, and it's like, there's a moment where they're all terrified and they're like, no, I don't, you know. I'm like, no, no, this is gonna be good. You know, from a pedagogical standpoint, it's good. They have to, like, <laughs> they know people are gonna see these. They're, it's not gonna be anonymous. Um, but it also spreads that enthusiasm, right? They, you know, I ran into a student whose high school teacher was visiting and he was just gushing about, like, look at my name on the wall in the library next to this Audubon reprint. And, you know, really having that public-facing product that allows students to feel that ownership, have that pride, share that enthusiasm, um, and then, you know, has these nice sort of repercussions of showing the administration that objects are important, of helping the librarians to make their case that um, books are important, and, um, and really modeling a kind of collaborative spirit as well, right? I'm the director of the art galleries, the curator of the college's art collection. I am totally happy to move art across campus as long as it's not raining that's the it's the one ground rule I don't move art in the rain um, you know these are <laughs> which is something that I also talk with my students about right why don't we move art in the rain um, and you know then they're like oh yeah you don't move art in the rain I was like yeah that's, that's it it's one rule don't move art in the rain um, but but really and, and, you know, this kind of openness and frankness, you know, some of the things that came up in the social justice lunch yesterday about kind of um, being transparent about what you're doing, showing it to the public, and, and kind of being transparent about the work that goes into what you're doing. And so I think that what I hope we can all kind of figure out for ourselves is how to capture this enthusiasm that at least everyone I've spoken to over the last is it four days we've been here um, has, has, has some of that enthusiasm. So hoping, hoping we can all find a way to, to encapsulate that and, and take it back home with us. Thank you.
Next is a both of my. Hello, good, uh, good morning, everybody. Um, uh, just a brief bit of background, um, and then really three three observations. Uh, I live in South Africa, um, and I do some teaching at NYU. Um, I've worked a lot of book history. I've worked in book history, and I've obviously read a lot of stuff. But this is really my first exposure to to this kind of conference. So I was very happy and delighted to be here. Um, I arrived at the very, very tail end of the plenaries. I attended the open sessions. I wasn't in any of the working groups, and I also attended the social justice lunches. So that was my particular um, angle on this conference. Um, and I must say, I was just particularly struck by the energy and will in those social justice lunches. And as I understand it, the intention of this conference is to try and move book history, to move it outwards, out from um, a, a traditionally Anglo-American focus. And I could just see the will and the energy in those lunches um, indicated that that would certainly happen and would happen in really interesting sorts of ways. Um, I suppose the three points I have is to say, where, where did the conference not seem to take book history? So just three reflections from my point of view on um, where, what were the routes not taken, what seemed to be the striking silences. Um, again, just in terms of disciplines itself, um, it seemed, and I don't know, that it would be interesting to think about what were the disciplines that were not here. Um, the ones that struck me was, um, I don't know if there were any geographers, and that seemed a very useful and productive link. Um, I, I think there was maybe one anthropologist um, but anthropo you know, textual anthropology seems very close in, in, in spiritual history. Um, and also, oddly, and I don't know if I'm correct, but no media and communication studies people. So, so just um, that seemed to me an, um, you know, an, an area worth thinking of. I think the second thing that really struck me was the absence of any discussion of ecology and climate change. And it seems to be such an interesting and obvious route uh, for book history to take, and in some senses it already occupies that space. Patricia Yeager has of course pointed out that, and a lot of this work is happening, that um, the considerations of um, a, a literary form, literary genre, material form, um, you know, should be grappling seriously with the issues of what are the forms of energy that make those possible, and what are the modes of waste that they produce. Um, and book history seems very perfectly positioned to take and animate that particular field in really interesting sorts of ways. And then just my third point was, um, obviously because I live in South Africa, I was very struck by the absence of engagement with Africa. Um, the, the conference had a really impressive um, attempt to engage globally. Um, and, you know, I can see, and that will obviously grow, and one cannot have comprehensive coverage. But I suppose if there is a very striking absence, um, it's, it's worth, it, it's an intellectually productive point to say, oh, this is interesting, why is there no engagement? Can we use the history of that lack of engagement to feed back into our own disciplines? How, if we open up forms of engagement with that area, would that open up new latitudes and suggest new kinds of directions? So I think it could be an extremely productive uh, question to, to ask. 
And then just linked to that, I suppose is my third and a half point, um, is it's very, uh, I've done work thinking about comparisons of Africa and South Asia, and I do quite a lot of work on the Indian Ocean. And it's a very interesting and challenging issue to me about how you really mount productive comparative conversations. Um, And I think it's something that everybody grapples with. A scholarship has to become more global. How do you enable conversations that are not either simply just juxtaposition or, as often happens, simply ships passing in the night? Um, And so I think it's really worth grappling with that, with thinking about how you compose, um, put together panels. And I think a a lot of it is reimagining formats because I think the traditional you know, uh, paper presentation uh, is very much about mastery of a particular area and doesn't really, it's not the genre that lends itself automatically to comparison. Uh, which is not to say I went to um, some fabulous panels uh, which attempted to draw together different parts of the world and you know, my congratulations to the organisers of those panels, those were really fantastic. But I think, as I said, it's something that we all have to uh, grapple with. But thank you very much. Um, <laughs> next, Hanson Chen. Um, thank you, and thanks um, to Andras Melissa for, for having me um, at this panel, um, or this, this, this plenary. I feel, sorry, uh, a bit out of place. Um, I was thinking maybe the last 10 minutes or so what I could really say as um, obviously the, the youngest and most junior member of this panel. Uh, and so I thought it could be structured actually not around, um, I, I will briefly mention some of my own observations and participating for, uh, as an observer, as purely an, an auditor in the Globalizing Book History of Bibliography uh, workshop. But mostly um, I'd actually want to speak around the point of what I would call scholarly, scholarly personae and virtues. Um, of, of the community assembled here, um, and particularly stress uh, what I would um, I might call two virtues: um, one of irreverence and one of the irony of belonging. Um, so this, 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 this term bibliography among the disciplines that's uh, been used as title for this conference, um, perhaps would like to suggest that bibliography is not a discipline, and indeed it's not constituted as such institutionally per se. Um, but for me. It, almost slightly, if inadvertently, it leaves the question open as to how much bibliography itself disciplines us. And indeed, I had this image in my mind of um, this, this kind of uh, rather fanciful image of us being trained as sleeper agents and the hidden emissaries of an empire of bibliography who will infiltrate academia and all little departments and then one day stage a kind of coup uh, to bring bibliography to its fore. So really, we need to think about how we are also, um, as on the one hand, using bibliography as a way to challenge the existing structure of the way our disciplinary discourses uh, have been formed, but also what it is that bibliography is doing in terms of its own power and operating upon us. Um, bibliography is, in, at least in, in my early encounter with it, um, ha- or has the pretensions towards being um, a science of description, um, a natural history that transplanted into the world of inscriptions and texts. And like natural history, it aims to tame the teeming variety, um, the, the teeming variety of a textual nature, and thus producing normative and normalizing descriptions. Um, in this sense, one of the main anxi- one of the principal anxieties that came up uh, during the globalizing book history and uh, globalizing book history and um, bibliography workshop um, was a deep anxiety about what constitutes the nature of the book. Um, I'm sorry. 
about the nature of the book itself. Um, uh, indeed, in, uh, the globalizing impulse challenged the, the notion, uh, the very notion of, of a stable book. Um, and it's, it's to this end, I think, that first um, some notion of irreverence um, is actually in hand. So bibliography, uh, again, not necessarily in the form that we would like to practice it, but often in the forms of which we encounter it, and just causes a negative reaction amongst so many of our peers. Um, uh, I think that aspect of bibliography comes from the fact that it, it does exercise a certain type of policing power. Um, it's the constitution of, of the legitimacy of text, of what is authentic, authentic or uh, what is not. Um, so, and that juridical sense of a text is deployed in other contexts, um, uh, whether it's scholarly or even juridical. Um, at the same time, uh, bibliography is also part of the reification of a canon and orthodoxy, uh, of what can be used, what is visible and what should not be. Um, and uh, we can see this in the constitution of intellectual genealogies, of transmission um, through the aspect of bibliography, as well as the ways in which other aspects of bibliography, even in the material focus, also produce certain types of moral and aesthetic judgments uh, about the makers and the qualities of text. Um, so irreverence then challenges the notion, uh, or sh it should be about challenging the notion uh, of what we consecrate as the book itself. Uh, indeed, irreverence often strikes me uh, as a certain uh, maybe uncured undergraduate impulse I have, um, which is when I'm in libraries and special collections and archives, um, every, well, maybe not every, I as an undergraduate often wanted to cause chaos in libraries. Um, I, I, um, I like the idea of, of, let's say, not destroying books, but uh, putting books out of place, uh, um, We've all imagined various scenarios in libraries and things we can do that can upset the solemnity and silence of it. I think we can transfer that. I think we should transfer that energy actually into what our scholarly output is. Is that these spaces, while important, um, should also be challenged in some sense, uh, in that the respect in which they create and all in which they create also needs to be undermined. Um, I think about sometimes in my own work, uh, the things that interest me the most are actually the accidental blotches, smudges, smears, signs of use, wear, and tear. Um, and the way in which collections functions is to, is to excise an object, to enclave it from its circulation, and therefore it's kind of living, uh, almost living, uh, let's say, uh, destruction in some sense, or at least erosion um, through the natural forces that tell us actually about the social lives of text. Um, so we need to be careful about thinking what exactly um, the libra uh, libraries, archives, and special collections do in consecrating the text as the object of a certain moment and a certain historical context, thus removing it from its life and circulation. Indeed, we need to be careful about the way in which libraries and archives produce dead objects. Um, so I would, I would say irreverence in that sense is, is uh, a valuable, uh, valuable scholarly virtue to have in mind. Um, the second is this, uh, I, this thing that I'm temporarily calling the irony of belonging, which I, I've just made up as a term uh, maybe 10 minutes ago. Um, uh, but this is a question that came up on a social justice panel when we were asked as to who really feels as if they belong here. Um, and there are various opinions upon that. Uh, and I would just suggest that uh, probably the, the, the greatest thing that can come out of uh, bringing us together in a space such as this um, is actually uh, the tension between always belonging and never belonging, perhaps never wanting to be a member of a club that would have you as one. Um, <laughs> I think what produces actually the most interesting scholarship is precisely that none of us perhaps would actually identify as, or none of us may really wish to identify as bibliographers or book historians outright, and yet we feel, feel somehow pulled towards this in a certain way. And to navigate that tension, to feel as if one perhaps never belongs, and to understand that never belonging rather than being a negative statement is in fact a productive, critical moment, um, is the thing that I would have us all keep in mind as we move from our belonging in this space here to disperse among our various different departments. Um, so that's, that's it. And now, <coughs> Alexia has a voice.
thanks to the conference and session organizers for this invitation. And so I will do my best because as one colleague summed up our experience over the several past days as hashtag mind blown. For indeed, this was my experience as well and as a champion of this work and to deliver you a charge, I came to the conference with little expectation than to just really simply revel and engage in the purely haptic experience of engaging with material objects because after all, that's what we're about, right? And so the materials, the experience of engaging with said materials, the experience of inviting others to engage with us or to revel in the beauty of silence and singularity. So I fully expected our materials to be completely anthropomorphized for us to speak about them as treasured peers, colleagues, friends, first loves, adversaries, and enemy combatants. Those expectations were fulfilled. We wrestled with the text, the material items, and all the ways outlined, and yet you pushed it further. As a card-carrying member of the hip-hop generation, as one who remembers what it was like in the late 70s and the early 80s for individuals to take material objects and to stretch and bend and morph them, to distort them, to create new languages, to open up new ways of learning, to expose layers that were once hidden, to see new content and new context. My dear colleagues, I believe I can say to you that you created the remix at this conference. <laughs> As I watched the remix of bibliography among the disciplines, I was both moved and perplexed, stimulated and worried, celebratory yet selective in what I ingested because at times it was delightfully too much. We negotiated intriguing and difficult terrain, sessions explored the love and abuse of books, books, traces of kissing techniques that were explored as well as the deconstruction for rather pedestrian rationale. Data was analyzed and visualized as augmented personal research tools and catalysts for social activism. Race was surfaced in ethnobibliographic approaches. Quilts were leveraged as text. Audio recordings helped us to hear the past. Network science was explored in women's print history, and I was bedazzled by medieval medical charms. And at the same time, we asked the critical questions of who is here, what is here, who is missing, what is missing, and why. Digitization, representation, and access indeed matters as we explore what an accessible past really looks like. How do we decode the invisible library and textual artifacts? In what ways do we and should we plan for the future in, of the past in digitized spaces? How do we tell the life story of digital content? The remix continued on Twitter as we feverishly contribute to content creation and openly pondered if this material of, uh, would constitute the rare book of the future. We explored big ideas, social justice, pedagogy, diversity, equity, and inclusion. If there was such a thing as a woke or a lit conference for those concerned with multimodal dimensions of the book, this was it. <laughs> And yet the conflict in the collection and even within our larger scholarly community gnawed and picked at us as we openly lamented the ethnic homogeneity of session attendees, the strategic silencing and dismissing of some of us in sessions, the pervasive sense of the over term imposter syndrome that prevented some of us from voicing opinions and raising questions, am I good enough to be here? filled the air and whispered conversations in corridors far more than it should have. My dear colleagues, the remix requires work to remain fresh. 
And as the progenitors of hip hop and its expanded community, those who distort and reshape material objects and sounds to produce a remix still struggle with inclusion of those marginalized within marginalized communities. LGBTQ, women of color, Midwestern, rural, and Southern voices were absent. We struggled at this conference to include us all. Our most perfect and intentional future is as rich and beautiful as the papermaking processes that we participated in, the lush gold leaf text we examined, the experience of a human audible gasp embodied in a computer scientist. It is seeing us, seeing this history, this work as an infinity shape with humanist archivists, librarians, and curators, all of us. The remix means continuing to reshape towards the articulated change you have begun this process. Continue to remix the future of our past. Thank you. have a text. So, in the last four days, I've heard papers about quilts and manuscripts, buildings and doors, books and Bob Dylan CDs. It seems clear that Mackenzie's expansive vision for the field, first voiced in his Panizzi lectures of 1985, has been fully realized. There is no going back from this. To quote from the Japanese video game, Katamari Damacy, my earth really is full of things. <laughs> Bibliography, we might say, is as big as the earth or as big as the world. Bibliography is, uh, is as big as the world, but the world is bigger than bibliography. Anyone plugged into their social networks or the cable news in their hotel room knows what I mean. Even as our presentations and discussions and dinners proceeded here in Philadelphia, Puerto Rico remained in the dark, California continued to burn, the burial of the dead continued apace in Las Vegas, and discipline and punishment of our most vulnerable continued to be handed down directly from the resolute desk in the Oval. A woman was blocked from Twitter because she spoke out or spoke up, and statistically, 372 people in these United States are dead from gunfire since Thursday. At one point on Friday, I scrawled this in my conference notebook. What bibliography offers is an uncompromising commitment to the individuality of things, every instance, every copy. I think I can live with that, which is to say, work with it, adopt it as part of what Richard Rorty would have called my final vocabulary. And yet, the world is bigger than bibliography. Yesterday, at the outset of an on-fire presentation, and here you should imagine the emoji for fire, <laughs> Simran Tadani proposed a modest but, I think, mighty revision of the conference title, Bibliography Beyond the Disciplines. Her point, as I took it, we need to take it to the streets. Likewise, when Brent Seals, 
virtually unrolled the sheets of a 2,000-year-old scroll withdrawn into a lump of shriveled carbon, all of us drew in our breath. What a wonder. That which had previously been opaque became transparent in the blink of a pixel. The illegible became legible. The lost was found. Brent is right. The invisible library is there waiting for us. But the invisible library is not just in libraries and rare book rooms. It is also, I submit, in those streets that Sim spoke of, which is to say it too is as big as the world. On my own campus last May, Richard Collins III, a young black man, newly commissioned as a second lieutenant in the United States Army and about to graduate from nearby Bowie State University, was murdered because he would not step off of a curb and into the street to clear a path for a white man. The six-inch high ridge of poured concrete that is the curbside is a thing. It's a line laid across a tiny piece of the world, and that line is also a text semantically and semiotically replete, a palimpsest of marbled lunch counters and acrylic bus seats. Perhaps, too, the curbside is finally even a book in the most capacious and, in this case, most terrible sense of a gathering, as Erica Beckler reminded us yesterday. Bibliography is as big as the world, and the world is full of things. The bibliography I want, the bibliography I think this conference took a very significant step forward towards making visible is one that turns its uncompromising qualities of attention to the individuality of both carbonized scrolls and curbsides, to better, the better to forge those curb cuts which Claire Mullaney compared our work to on Thursday at the social justice pop-up. Bibliography then as attention to books, of course, but so many other things too. Things like the resin of those mass-produced Confederate statues with their hollow cores that bent so obligingly once just a little force was applied. Things like the glitched weather maps that can't properly render the hurricane-force winds now headed towards Ireland because their algorithms can't compute those winds for that part of the world. Uh, These are circulating on Twitter if you haven't seen them. Libraries, then, yes, but also the power grid that runs electricity to the library. So I think of the crowdsourced mapathon for Puerto Rico as seen in Wired Magazine and the New York Times, which Alex Gill was instrumental in organizing, and the way it focused participants' attention on individual buildings and bridges and streets. Is all of that really bibliography? I hope so. If not, then I don't want to know from bibliography. Thank you. Okay, the floor is open for questions, comments, reflections that can be addressed to the room, to the panel among the panel. There are going to be some microphones moving around, which I know often feel like they impact the natural flow of conversation, but are important to make um, sure everyone can be heard in this large space.
we always count on Sylph. I think one of the things that was really most powerful to me coming back to this conference after eight months out of the field um, was a statement that I think Rilith Barnes made at the quilting talk that she gave from um, Stephanie that poem. Um, it's okay to have feelings about books. It's okay to be passionate, it's okay to be worried, it's okay, but I think, you know, as personally somebody who spent eight months denying that I have feelings about books, that I can move out of the field and get on with the rest of my life and ignore what books are telling us, I think I came back right to the front row with a rallying cry to say, look, we need to, we need to be, I need to be back here, I need to be taking this even further out into the streets. Um, and I think that this has been some of the most kind of passionate engagement that I've seen from a group of people that I've never seen in the same room before. I tend to go to conferences where all the Renaissance people are talking to all the Renaissance people, like all the medievalists are chatting with the medievalists and never the twain shall meet. And I, I just wanted to say that this was a pretty good way to come back, so I'm back. I, <laughs> Without all the people I have met through Rare Book School and through here 
this event and all of the perspectives I've heard here. So I just want to say thank you. Shakespeare hardly um, doesn't like you to 
institutional pushback on the kinds of work that I want to do, both structural um, as well as institutional. Um, and I'm just wondering how we can push back on that kind of, those kinds of issues. I guess that's a question to the crowd.
uh, students from the Chicago suburbs and very non-affluent students from Milwaukee um, with all the attendant racial demographics that you might imagine um, happening there in the most in the city that is known as the most segregated city in America, right? Uh, it's Milwaukee's great today. Um, and so, terrible. Um, and so, but, uh, so I'm thinking a lot about how to include my diverse body of students in the classroom, what to do, especially medieval renaissance, these high elite culture status things. And, but one of the things that I think history of the book does, and maybe that speaks to questions of access too, is that at least I think that uh, I try to inculcate in my students the sense of ownership to pick back up on what Megan Jorge, I think, was uh, saying earlier. Because my students, they just finished these midterm projects on these objects, and they took possession of their object, ownership of their object, went back to special collections. And some of them uh, delved into and told me you can do whatever you want. If you want to research the history of the Dale Press, that's one way of doing it. If you want to stare at the initials and think about how the initials and the centripetal were put together, that's another way of doing it. It's up to you. It's your, it's your project. It's your work. And I think, to go back also, I'm trying to synthesize all this. Trying to go back to what Joe was just saying, I think that in this world, in this political climate, where I think our students feel so adrift in this post-truth, alternative fact world, where everything is so messed up and everyone has no sense of what the future is going to look like with climate change, with social security, with healthcare, with anything, telling them you have ownership of this one thing today, with this space of this classroom, for the space of this special collections visit, but the space of this project, I think does, I don't know, does some kind of important work. That is only the very, very beginning, but I think if book history can do something in this world, it can give our students some node, something that they can literally tangibly grasp, right? And maybe that helps mitigate against some of the other endless problems that we have going on right now. Is this working? Okay. Um, as I was listening yesterday, moving from um, session to session, I heard more than one person talk about the difficulty of getting letterpress instruction in their programs as English departments, buying the press, setting up a shop. And um, I wanted to share a little, some more stories of having just done that at the University of Michigan and also connect that to some of the deep issues, deeper issues of why we do history at all. Um, when I moved back to Detroit in 2012, I moved for one faculty position and thought I would be saving my little press and another press and save Detroit. And someone had told me in 2012, no, you will end up saving the alternative press, one of the most important small literary presses of the 20th century. I would have fainted with fear. But that is what happened. Um, and we managed to get the library to buy the press. I set it up last year. We have the entire press. We have the ornaments. We have the ink. We have the paper. And it is a book historian's dream true to work to be able to actually reconstruct everything. And we also have the entire paper archive. Um, it is well worth doing. And doing so requires the kind of knowledge and daring that you were describing with hip hop that you have to simply move. Artists just move. They don't think about institutions. They don't think about what you can't get done. And particularly artists in Detroit. I mean, the hustling harder thing is not a joke. Um, and 
I learned how to preserve and curate a letterpress studio, and I'm very glad I learned to do that. My students and the Ann Arbor community is learning, and there's a great deal of letterpress activity now going on in Ann Arbor. The Ann Arbor District Library has invested in two bad cooks and a ton of time from MNH, and they have two open studios a month, and people are coming. Those, those open studios are packed. Letterpress is like knitting. Tell this to any institution who is in, who has a maker space <laughs> at angle. I believe the humanities teaches what people need to know for themselves. People need to read for themselves. They need to write for themselves. Maker spaces teach us all the other things people want to know for themselves. It's fine to buy a hat, but better to knit your own. And what I heard at the Open Letterpress Studio of the Ann Arbor District Library was, well, I could go buy a sign, but this is for my boat. I wanted to make this sign. These are my business cards. I'm going to hand them out. So I believe that the art of letterpress, and therefore book history, the practices of book history, will be sustained through print shops, and I encourage all of you with some, any institutional pull at all to pursue setting up studios from that angle, and particularly in maker spaces where they found a, a convenient, you know, a, a good home at the University of Michigan Library. And the other thing to say is to say something about artifacts um, and history, and what we do can seem like historical reenactment in a way, and following the traces and fetishizing the object and, and chasing the aura and all the things that one might worry about. Um, but I think about something that's part of um, Roger Chardier's practice, that as a historian, what you're really trying to do is reconstruct an event. And the materiality of an artifact is the point of contact between the present moment and that moment long past. So when the poet, printer, Ken Michalowski said, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and redistribute all the type before I give you the studio, I said, no, 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 don't do that. Keep the type the way it is. And we have standing type of Charles Bernstein and Sherman Lessie that will stand forever in our collections. right? And if anyone else touched that type and moved it around, it wouldn't be the alternative press type anymore. It would be something. And we saw this again with the um, that the marvelous um, of any right reconstruction last week. Somehow history was able to be extracted from an artifact. An event was able to be established as having happened. And that is a deep part of what we all do. That is what is consummately historical about our enterprise. And when people ask you, or are you just play acting, or is letterpress the latest fad? It isn't. It is the continuation and perpetuation of practices, and it is the understanding of the connection between text and event. And I just hope that gives you all some heart as you go and, you know, buy out any M&H's stuff of type. <laughs> to briefly um, follow on from that and yes to all of that and the one sort of emendation I would offer is that for a better press read also other kinds of textual technologies and so I'm thinking uh, wondering um, about for example our 
digital world and our screen lives that people have, have mentioned and what the equivalent sorts of activities would be for, for setting up that letterpress shop and teaching students how to set type and so forth. And so I'm thinking about the, the value of having students make their own Twitter bot, for example, or curating a meme, or participating in something like the Puerto Rico Mapathon, but getting their hands dirty, as it were, digitally, um, as well as with um, some of the, the more traditional technologies that we associate with book history. I think the, the key point is that the, the same ethos of participation and experimentation uh, still holds. Hi, I'm Kate Jackson, and I used to work at the University of Michigan. Really happy to have you here. And Astros won last night. If you didn't know, um, <laughs> just a Yankee fans. Um, <laughs> wow, I'm absorbing all this after coming to this past bringing it all together from three conferences and having the best brunch hosted by any conference I've ever had. And I've had dialogue and conversation with five remarkable colleagues who inspired me like everyone else in this room. Um, in August at Penn State, we hosted a conference called Intersections, which was the role of public services and special collections libraries. And I um, was honored to invite speakers who spoke a lot about the challenges of description and historical practices of description vis-a-vis -vis how our students and researchers will find what they're looking for if we continue to perpetuate um, sort of historical, homogenous, and arguably hegemonic practices in our descriptive histories. And how could we even do accurate public services if we aren't looking at our description as closely as we're looking at the errata in the back of a certain book? That's one, and that, I brought that with me. And then number two was last week, I was equally excited to attend the Who Cares Conference at Harvard University 75th anniversary of the Hilton Library, where um, where I think the spirit of all three of these is the idea that our fields, fields plural, are taking a great risk right now and bringing to four conversations that in my professional past, we talked about in the back, where we have one little session that y'all y'all allowed us to have, like called it the diversity session, or here's where our early career people can go and vent about us session. But I'm so excited to see these colleagues, and I say y'all, I'm part of that y'all now. I'm not trying to dissociate myself, but back then, we were y'all. Um, and I, I'm excited to see the, the empowerment of speakers behind the big microphone, not behind the little microphone. So thank you to Michael and uh, for hosting this, and then also to our marvelous um, planners and Donna and uh, And I'm going back to, uh, I don't know your name, I apologize, at the very end of the table. Um, Hansa. Hansa. I'm going back to your statement of irreverence, man, that was awesome. But I looked at it differently, and I, got, I, I kind of twinged at the word empire, I don't like that word. <laughs> but um, but I, I get the spirit of what you're saying. But anyway, uh, I have a great reverence for Rare Book School. I give them money, I've written letters on their behalf so they could um, acquire great um, um, funding. I'm very excited for them, and I also have a reverence, <laughs> as you know, for, for both the reverence school and our field. And I think that's healthy. I think we should have, uh, we should not glorify and make 
this um, unattainable um, canonical with the capital C saint uh, experience and really flattened out. And I'm harking back to Maria Sorino's uh, statements at the Cures where she talked about democratizing authority. And um, I came to this uh, conference. I asked any of you um, if when I, my first day, like, what do you think is the goal of this conference? And a lot of you said you didn't know, which was interesting, um, because I thought the goal was to talk about the multidisciplinarity approaches of, of, our, of our field. And, and it wasn't like you didn't know. It was just like, maybe because you know it's coming from me, I was asking for a charged response. I wanted <laughs> But, but I was curious, you know, what we thought. And I, and I, I wanted, I took 12, 13 pages of notes. I'm not checking email, writing people. I am taking notes here. Um, and Michael opened the um, session um, talking about the two threads of our graduate school, right? Uh, building a close relationship to the materiality and making a cultural instantiation of meaning. That's like not my words. And then, and then the second one was building a community. And then, that was beautiful. I, I heard that, like, this is the goal of this conference. But then Barbara Heritage came up and she said, we need to expand the remit of bibliography in your practice. And I really thought, wait a minute, that is the theme of this conference. All of you from this room have a new remit. But I hope that in the spirit of what I am, that you don't think I am your enemy or I'm trying to uh, dismantle anything. I'm, I'm certainly trying to disrupt something. Um, but it's, as I said at the table, I'm not trying to question um, our trajectory. Uh, I'm trying to understand what is driving our momentum and what is making our momentum um, authentic enough for us to get to that aspirational. So please put your actions into this aspiration and um, and don't at all think I'm not on your side. I'm gonna continue to give money to Reverend Swell. I hope you all do too. And, um, and I hope you give and then we challenge each other to give and we, um, do this with each other. And finally, I want to say I'm not here for me or for uh, my field. I'm actually here for the students because honestly, um, that that was, you were saying what's missing here. I would have loved to see, and I really appreciate that, uh, that you brought some Penn State students with you. Uh, I know they're in the room, so they're sitting there like, what are these people talking about? <laughs> and I really, I really hope that we, we don't lose light of the fact that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of students who, as Matt said, were, um, were not um, trapped or, or locked in a bubble that we all think we're in. They're, they're in the world just like we are. And, um, and they want to understand what is making us so inspired to continue to work in these times. And I think if you, if you shed your inspiration along with sharing authority, they will meet you. But please do share that authority. Thank you. Real quick, uh, I have nothing other than a simple, simple thank you. I am a scholarship recipient. I know there are several people in the room here. My name is Megan Alder. Hi, how are you? Um, I wanted to say thanks because this is my first bad conference, and it is also my first railroad school event. Um, uh, my institution could not afford to send me here. I could not afford to send me here. So I really appreciate it, and this has been an incredible learning opportunity. That's all I had to say. <laughs> Behind the Rare Book School, and I'm going to put a few words here. 
helpful for you to have an agreement. And by the help of critical bibliographies, help us build alliances beyond our traditional disciplines, beyond maybe our um, professional boundaries. Um, and as we look sort of more broadly for what bibliography should be doing in our, in our world, which I think was one of the um, themes of the respondents, um, I've been thinking sort of throughout this conference about what these next set of alliances need to be. Like I now talk to a classicist really regularly, but maybe <laughs> but and I'm not going to that as an example, but what are the next set of alliances? One of the most sort of um, exciting uh, opportunities for me or for me was when Alexi mentioned one of the lunches that uh, you feel like you need the American Library Association needs more uh, faculty and that's something that I'm really excited to participate in uh, to further the agenda that the American Library Association is doing. So I'm wondering if uh, I can sort of pull the room and the panelists and ask you to weigh in on what kind, of, what other kinds of alliances we can do to bring that bibliography out into the world. Um, well, can, can I suggest an alliance, um, which is an alliance with practicing printers? So, um, last time I talked about book school, um, I had a, a practicing printer, David Wolf, um, who runs a, a, a printing shop in Portland, uh, Maine, in my class. I learned a huge amount from him. Um, I hope he learned something from me. Um, he's a practicing printer, he runs a linotype machine, he runs monotype casters. Um, he's also doing a lot of Italian printing. And I'm just thinking about the sort of alliances that can be formed between not between people who actually make books. There are obviously it's important in the future to think about who's making books now, to talk to, to, to printers who are using modern technology because it's going to be historical technology tomorrow. <laughs> um, but also to think about the number of people who are who the number of sort of more elderly um, practicing printers who've learned monotype, who've got so much to contribute. And I'm, I mean, obviously, I know plenty of people are aware of this, but it's interesting we talk, you know, um, the idea that you know, bibliographical presses are incredibly important. I totally support the idea of bibliographical presses. But I think we should also think about what alliances we can make with, with, with bookmakers um, outside of the um, outside of the academy, and um, and think about the hobby, the hobby printers. I mean, printing has become very fashionable. It's like knitting, um, it's crochet, whatever. But and some of these people have enormous skills, but not necessarily the historical knowledge. And I think uh, what I've been trying to think about, and I haven't got the answer to this yet, but I think we need to think about how we can learn from them. And at the same time, sort of give them some historical information so that they can then, you know, they can then put into practice some of the historical knowledge that we've gained and see how it works. So they can become part of our laboratory. That, that's all. Because I already have a microphone, I'm going to um, repeat um, that our students are our collaborators, and that doesn't necessarily take having gone to a school to know, but um, from what Megan was saying, what Matt was saying. Um, what Athena was saying, our students are our collaborators for building future digital, physical, and um, other kinds of projects. So, um, I'm Barbara, and uh, just to reply, Hannah, I am um, so letting you know that I work on the reception history of Jane Eyre, and this spring, um, 
We invited him down as part of a festival of the book event that happens in Charlottesville. A, um, a writer um, who wrote an adaptation of Jane Eyre, which is really great because I, I never get to meet the authors. Um, <laughs> 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 and so, but she basically adapted um, Jane Eyre and a, a wonderful novel called um, Read Jane. Um, and it was about Korean American culture and question. It was very, a book that was provocative, that questioned and undermined a lot of. Um, material in Jane Eyre, but that was also very engaged um, with Bronte's overall project. And it was a really great event because she had never seen um, a collection of Jane Eyre over a long time. Mm -hmm. I had adaptations from the 19th century, so she got to connect with other makers herself that she didn't know about until she saw the collection. And I got to connect with her and talk about her process, um, how she reread and her, her actual work with the novel and her publication process. And it was really illuminating for me. Um, and we um, really want to stay in touch and do it, you know, do more things together. Um, and also talking about the future tra trajectory of her novel, which is being reprinted and then turned maybe a series. So, so um, I would encourage people who work on a subject like that to work out not, not only relationships but authors and other kinds of living makers who, you know, they seem a bit distant, but we can reach out to them and they really are, they are interested in how their work fits into the bigger historical picture and record. I want to kind of bring together two of these threads, which is that um, we need to think about our students who are not our makers, right? It's not just the English literature students, it's not just the art history students, but it's the studio students. So for, I'm in an art and art history program with two and a third and the third art historians. We have a very small major, but some of the most productive, or maybe that's and some of the most productive experiences I've had teaching have been with studio majors in my history of printmaking class. Mm -hmm. right? A student who tries to make a master copy of Durer's Rhinoceros has a very particular understanding of the impossibility of that word. You know, she ends up making an etching because she's like, ugh, this woodcut thing, it's awful. Um, and, you know, her, at that point, our printmaking faculty member was also like, oh, right, I guess I make white wine. You know, like, the, what I do is not what you're trying to do. Um, so just really embracing the students outside of our disciplinary homes and, and encouraging our students to explore these technologies in their own practices. Um, and whether, you know, I do that both with my studio students and with the science majors who come to my visual cultures of science class in which I say, no, we're gonna look at 18th century, 19th century science texts and you just kind of set aside that it's all wrong and we, we kind of start start again about what is science. Um, but, but just to sort of bring those students from outside of our disciplinary homes sort of, again, authorize them um, um, to bring their authority to, to what we're doing. Um, my name is, my name is Anna. Um, I wanted to say that at this conference, I typically introduce myself as somebody who works at the University of Pennsylvania in digital assets and with digital materials, but what I don't say is that I also work two days a week at a North Philadelphia high school. And um, 
As someone who's really interested in digital projects and the use of digital materials, I think I've learned just as much from that high school about the use of foreign digital materials and also um, sort of contemporary reading practices and the use of digital media from my students and my fellow administrators as I do with people that I work with at the University of Pennsylvania. So I think an important alliance to follow up on Hannah's question is also um, alliances that cross economic bounds and educational boundaries um, and to not be afraid of really working with and collaborating with those people as well. Um, and so in a sense, I guess two points in response to this could possibly also be formulated. Um, I think this is an absolutely uh, vital question to ask where lines can be formed, especially as I think all of us find ourselves in increasingly pondering um, the boundaries of not so much the alliances, but actually what types of products um, might encounter that scholarly work. So in some sense, I think that the reimagining of alliances is actually reimagining what output is that's important. Um, one of the, fun, the funny kind of outcomes of the work working group for global um, global book history was that uh, this question is: Do we really want to produce a book? Uh, of course, it's talking about globalizing book history, um, and this also goes to Isabel Hoffmeyer's point later on about reimagining the forms of what collaboration are about in terms of, of exceeding the notion of simply producing more specialist scholarship. Um, so alliances, I think, in a way, uh, in a way that forces into a different type of critical making that creates a new object that is not like um, other types of scholarly objects that we see. It's perhaps one way to, to try to imagine this dish. Um, what types uh, of work, other than perhaps even just the written text, which is what we specialize in making, um, can be can, can be the outcome of this? What types of rubrics can be instituted in institutions um, to evaluate this and counter us and ultimately? We do actually account for us, at least those of us who are getting scholars. I, I just wanted to add a small point onto to what uh, Megan and some others were saying. I mostly teach first years um, who are not yet disciplined, who are probably closer to your high school students. Um, and I, just, I try to bring some material logic, some engagement with books into, into the, any classroom that I have. Um, you know, they're also not likely to remain disciplined. They're likely to go out into the world and become other people. We can think about this instrumentally, oh, they might become donors or they might become advocates or humanities. But also just um, in, in the spirit of what, what someone was talking about yesterday, you know, to create a public for what we do that doesn't have to have that benefit output, but can just be, you know, part of this interested uh, community. So what I was going to say is a little bit gloomier than I had wanted to, but actually Claire's comment leads into it and what came before. Um, my second job when I was doing my PhD was a historical tour guide, uh, and it was great. It was one of the best jobs I ever had. And we would walk around and show layers of the city. You know, we, we would show people what you're looking at, and then talk about what came here generations and generations before. This was in New York, and so um, you know, I would do two-hour walking tours, and it made me think about you know, the, the potential public face of depositing ourselves whether in a guerrilla fashion or whether, but more likely on a, on a regular contrast in places where bibliographers shouldn't be. Do you see what I'm saying? So, so situating ourselves in public libraries and offering ourselves up and saying, well, do you, do you want to learn about this object as a physical one, not just as a carrier of information? I'm here and I'm sitting at the front. Um, I have no idea how to implement that, but that 
consider myself an early career veteran, I suppose. Um, still nervous talking in front of all of you, so uh, this may not be the well, most well-formatted little comment. Um, but I took last year, last summer, a course with David Banner Newland on scholarly editing. Uh, and if I learned anything, it's that bibliography uh, is everything and everything is bibliography. Uh, and in terms of kind of finding new audiences for bibliography, including more people in the conversation, uh, two blocks away, as I'm sure many of you know, is the Consortium for the Industry of Science, Technology, and Medicine. Uh, and Thursday night, I went to one of their working groups on astrolabes. And funnily enough, one of the presentations here was on astrolabes. And I was like, wow, during that conversation at the consortium, they were wondering, you know, where else could their research go? besides just predicting the accuracy of one single astrolabe. They want to do more of a social context of astrolabes. And they can use bibliography. Like, they should be here. And I think some of the fellows of the consortium are. Uh, so I think including people not in the literature, not in the arts, but in the sciences could be really useful. Thank you. Because I've been hearing a lot of this stuff. I mean. A lot of what we can do is outreach, but a lot of what we do is irreducibly weird as well. <laughs> and, and, and I think it's a good thing that it's, it's something to embrace. I mean, a lot of what we do is this really meticulous process in a lot of ways. And that's just a big part of, that's inevitably going to be a big part of what we do. And that's, I think, as I've come up against it and talking with other people here, the impression I've got is that um, a lot of students come through never having thought about the processes that get things into their hands. It's not just they don't think about where a book comes from, they don't think about paper, they don't think about uh, circuit boards, they don't think about like a, a large, they just don't think about the materiality of things because they never had a reason to, in, in many, many cases, not, not exclusively, but many, many cases. Um, and so much of what we do is, at that point, not just like teaching them about process, but like knowing what happens and how things break down and stop processing. And we're a big part of repair organizations and repair operations. Um, there's, sort of, there's sort of a scholarship of repair that we all sort of like practice in, in fits and starts of this, even if not systematically. Um, and we live in a society that is increasingly, you know, for many reasons outside of our control, going to start breaking down at an accelerating rate. And this is something that we are, in some ways, uniquely already prepared to work on the repair of those processes and to start thinking about ways that maybe we can even reconfigure things and make them better as, as they go. Um, and that's, again, that's, that's irreducibly weird to a lot of people who live in society. Um, but we're, in some ways, you know, it's sad that we're in a society that's doing this, but we're in a fortuitous position that we can place ourselves and say, like, no, actually, we can do something with this. We can take these pieces. We can make something here. Um, and I hope that maybe maybe we will be able to do this and uh, as we go on out of here today. Hi, um, this is sort of a strange way to think about the frame of repair, but I just wanted to offer um, to everyone, please make use of your colleagues in your conservation departments mm -hmm. as collaborators. I know um, we tend to sometimes have a reputation as people try to put annoying restrictions. <laughs> <laughs> But actually, we're equally invested in uh, making things as safe as possible. But also, in addition to our roles as uh, caretakers of the collections, we're deeply, deeply interested in how things are made and the history of how things are made. So, um, you know, the history of bookbinding, the history of materials, the perspective that technical analysis can bring to some of your investigations. 
and also just understanding how um, how the field is evolving in terms of how artifacts are, are created and sort of keeping up with that those trends as much as we can. Uh, one of the newest specialties in conservation education is conservation of time-based media and computer-generated art. So in addition to foreign digital library content, there are students studying you know, works of art that only exist in the computer environment. And so, you know, just, I'm just saying, feel free to talk to us. We'd love to interact with you and talk with you about what's going on in the world. Um, uh, this might not be the most focused response, so apologies in advance. Um, speaking as one of the few students who was here this weekend, I know that um, myself and the other undergraduate students I met, we, uh, we approached this conference with a very narrow idea of what we'd be encountering. And we all had our minds blowing just how diverse this field is and how much material there is. Um, and also, uh, someone had mentioned bringing writers into the conversation. And as a, as a writer myself, it has been a, so odd to go through a whole weekend where very few people talk about the creators of this content that we're looking at. And that, that feels so alien to me to talk about something and not talk about the people who made this because you need them. They, uh, you didn't have those people you know, you don't have the content that you're looking at. So absolutely, to, to reach out to those the authors would be incredible because they're there and they absolutely, they don't realize that the opportunity is there to engage in this sort of conversation, but absolutely, if you reach out, they love it. Um, <laughs> but also, um, as a humanities student, sometimes what I encounter at school is, uh, well, we don't have funding. We don't have funding. We love to do this, but we don't have funding. And then it's because it's all going to the stem. So it was so wonderful to hear um, the, talk, the talk last night about the um, scrolls from Getty because it's such a, a beautiful blending of technology and humanities that sometimes it seems like it has to be one or the other. And it's so wonderful to see that no, it doesn't have to be that way. We can we can use these to enhance each other and I wish we'd stress that more at the undergraduate level instead of focusing on just one or the other. Woo. So my first comment was all sentimentality and kumbaya. Uh, but I'm also an operations person, so I've been thinking during this whole session about action items and what do we take away with us, um, and some things that things that we can do. Um, and I will say I was partly responsible for that gorilla plenary of Sharp 2013, and so gorilla is one of my favorite words: how to do things the wrong way or make them happen despite the fact that things aren't quite lining up. But then I'll pun on the 600-pound gorilla in the room, which is money which the last comment we just talked about, right? That people, you know, we have funding, but we don't have funding for this. Or you have funding for such and such a thing, but you don't have funding to come to conferences, or your students don't have funding, etc. And I wanted to talk about, you know, the, the Mellon uh, Fellowship is one of the most spectacular things I imagine to have ever happened to this field in the kind of seeding that it has done of that infiltration of the foot soldiers into departments everywhere. But at some five figures ahead um, you know, of money that each of you has received, and it's an incredible amount of investment. I want to talk about what one can do without $20,000 at one's disposal. So some ideas. Um, make your work a model. Um, Adam Hooks puts all of his handouts online. I'm sure many others of you do that. And I talked to him last night, and he said, use it, remix it, do what you want with it. He didn't mention give me credit. He said, just take it and use it. That's one thing. Uh, Doc Porter um, does virtual uh, instruction sessions for classes that can't make it into the pen libraries. 
maybe you can do that too with your librarian and have a computer with a video camera. Um, Aaron Pratt is at the Ransom Center now and he regularly tweets and posts and says, you know, let's talk on Skype if you need reference help. Um, John Pollock um, is, at, um, is on the board of trustees of the Germantown um, school and he has seated there a little library that didn't cost a lot of little, you know, school books and things that actually people can handle. Doesn't cost a lot of money. But I was talking to Jenny Pollock this morning at the branch and she said she has a little box of stuff called traveling treasuries. Didn't cost a lot of money I imagine to put together but can be taken out into the Philly neighborhoods. Maybe we can be doing some of these types of things in our own lives and sometimes unfortunately they don't count for tenure. Um, and then it sucks and it falls to the bottom of the list. But I'm thinking maybe on the organizational side, if an organization could say instead of BSA giving one $5,000 fellowship, how much difference it would make to give five $1,000 fellowships? Um, or to say, I work at an institution that has a bunch of books, um, can you know Sharp or can Rare Book School uh, partner me with an institution that does not even have a special collections to speak of, um, and then can we work on video? You know, I'm, I'm trying to think of what I can do without that name on my badge that Sarah Werner was talking about. I don't have an institutional affiliation. I don't know if I will, but I want to think about how to take this to the streets, and there's work to be done, as as you were saying. Um, but I worry that sometimes we get into this, like, how do I make this happen? And there's ways to make it happen. And I think if we partner with technology, for instance, or if we partner with organizations and say, hey, I have this to offer, then maybe there could be some sort of central repositories or model making where, you know, hey, so-and-so did this at this institution, how do we take it across the country or things like that. And, um, and I walk away very, very, very inspired um, by all of the different things that have made me really think very hard. Um, but there's, there's still action items, and I want, I want to not get lost in the sentimentality of my last comment that you'll be hearing from me saying, I did this thing, hopefully, very soon. I just wanted to follow up um, on that. I'm um, Shelly Mango, I'm a curator at the Art Museum, Philadelphia Art Museum, um, in terms of drawings. And we, about, gosh, it's, I think it was about 17 years ago now, there was a consortium established here called the Philadelphia Print Collaborative. Um, and it blossomed into an um, international contemporary print festival that examined all different forms of the print that exist in 2010 and kind of petered out. And we're in the process of um, reorganizing as a consortium and I'm just offering this as a potential model for some of the things that you were just talking about because um, we reached out to artists who are not necessarily affiliated with any particular institution, printmaking workshops, any um, institution in the Philadelphia region that collects printed materials of any kinds, We've started having quarterly meetings where we take turns going to different locations. That institution, the people at that institution are responsible for organizing the agenda, sending out the list. We, we all collaborated on an emailing list that's ever expanding to continue to include people. And the ultimate goal is to get back into the model that we have with the collaborative of finding out what other people are working on at every meeting, seeing where there's opportunities for potential collaboration, someone has an idea but they don't have the money, perhaps three people can come together, apply for a grant together. And it has been very successful in the past, and it also, I think, addresses the issue of really reaching out and not even knowing necessarily who you might be able to collaborate with. Um, I just want to follow up on um, Sim's point. 
can say as someone um, who has a traditional um, academic background is now in a, in a traditional um, tenure track program, um, how easy it is for me to get up in my head and feel paralyzed, right? Like I have so many things to do, so many particular pressures. And I wanted to do this outreach, and I've just learned so much from the librarians that I work alongside. Um, and more recently, um, from the curators at our, our art museum as well. Um, and so I would just like to, and, and this is something Rotary School has, has brought home to me again and again, um, but, but to the academics in the room, I just, I just want to, you know, these networks in many cases are already there, right? Um, there's a sense that if we don't see something being done, we're, we need to invent it. Um, and, uh, you know, don't reinvent the wheel, but you can, you know, go downstairs and talk to your librarians who have these networks. Um, with local institutions who, in many cases, um, have been involved in local schools, local libraries, things like that, um, for much longer than I've been at my institution. Um, I've learned so much, and I'm so grateful to um, all of the librarians in the room. Um, and I hope that uh, this can, can be another step in creating a culture um, where, particularly in bibliographic fields, that kind of collaboration um, is the norm rather than So to close things off, first I want to thank everyone in this room for who has been in this room and everyone who has spoken in this room for participating in this conversation. This conference has been a really interesting pivot point from um, a, a lot of radical energy that started with the first Mellon Fellowship of Scholars in Critical Bibliography at Riverwood School. And here we're at this conference as a pivot point, bibliography among the disciplines. And we're about to pivot into the new era of the Society of Fellows of Scholars of Critical Bibliography at Berkeley School, which is going to take this work further. And I think that um, and that society is open to early career scholars, librarians, faculty, archivists, and curators who have projects and are interested in Berkeley School courses. Um, and I think um, one thing to quote my colleague John Garcia is to say that he said at this first social justice roundtable. Uh, critical bibliography has clearly de demonstrated already that it's committed to issues of social justice and interdisciplinarity. And to that point that he made, I would add from our conversation here to alliances, to pedagogy, to remixing, to irreverence, to comparison and the limits of comparison, to attention, both to the individual object and to things beyond that, a really radical form of attention, and uh, moreover, enthusiasm taking enthusiasm and trying to, to uh, draw on what a lot of you were saying, to work in the communities where we are, to start where we are, to start with who's already in the room, to do something exceptional. So thank you all for participating in this conversation this morning. You can do whatever you want. Stay where you are. Why not? Be witnesses. Now the ears of my ears are awake. Now the eyes of my eyes are opened. E. e. Cummings. It's very much the way I feel about these four days, that the ears of my ears are open and the eyes of my eyes are awake. That's a chiasm. 
to stand before you here so filled with hope and so profoundly challenged is, is um, a moment I'm unused to. Um, I hope you won't mind if I tell you that you have filled me with tremendous hopefulness for the future of bibliographical and book historical studies, um, that you have strengthened my resolve to use Rare Book School as an instrument to advance the common good in multiple ways. But I also feel, as I hope you do, profoundly challenged. W.B. Yeats importantly said, in dreams begins responsibilities. And if we have variously, in our own several ways, these days, shared a common dream, a dream that has a rich pluriformity and some dead ends and cul-de-sacs perhaps, we've learned anew and deepened our own vision again that we need each other to form those alliances to do the remix, but also I'm challenged by the fact that I think that the academic community needs the energies in this room, but also the ethical purpose in this room. What we've been talking about in these days is very political, even when it's not overtly so. I believe that bibliography can be profoundly ethical act because I believe that the kinds of things that we devote our attention to are the things that in the end make or not our lives. So, I'm filled with hopefulness and humility on the one hand, but profoundly challenged by you, by your sense of purpose, by the perspectives that at times I have found difficult and arresting in this room. And um, I can only believe that's deeply salutary. I can only say on behalf of Rare Book School, thank you. Thank you to all of you for what you've contributed this day and in the days before. But I'd particularly like to thank two groups. First of those groups is obvious. Obviously, I want to thank the 45 fellows who came and who have contributed so much. The fellows who have been on the program committee, the fellows who have been on the local arrangements committee, the fellows who have behind the scenes done so much to help make this happen. In so many ways, this conference is theirs. And that's a good thing because they can body this forth again. Uh, but I'd also like to thank the Rare Book School faculty who have contributed in so many ways to this program with, uh, by providing a kind of intellectual infrastructure, uh, particularly in some of those workshops. But even beyond that, um, 
for many of the faculty, the people in the room are your past and future students. And how great is that? So I'm, I'm very grateful to the fellows. I, I'm deeply grateful to the faculty. And um, I look forward to working with both of you, both groups, in the years ahead. I, I would like to um, say that uh, I think Donna C. and Barbara had something to do with this conference. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not really sure what, but, but, but somehow I think they had a tiny bit to do with this conference. And um, so I would like to thank them publicly. They've been working on this conference not since we got the grant, but for years before we got the grant. And um, I would like publicly to thank them and to give a um, small token of my affection. Please. But it's also true that they were very ably assisted by Claire Rieger. And, and Claire, Claire uh, should really get two bouquets, not only because she did the work that they asked them to do, but she also put up with their boss's boss. So, so, so let's thank Claire as well, please. Aristophanes is reputed to have said, let each man practice the art he knows. It seems to me that we need to go forth from this conference galvanized. We need to go forth from this conference supporting each other and to understanding that our job is precisely to expand and deepen the remit for bibliography. So um, thank you for teaching me. Thank you for galvanizing the community. But if we only do it here, we have failed, right? If we do it odd extra, then we begin to win. Thank you very much indeed. We have the joyful task of con con Continuing the list of thank yous. Um, first of all, we would truly like to thank the staff of the Chemical Heritage Foundation Conference Center. In particular, Larry Andreas, TJ Doe, who ran AV, um, and Emily Nichols, who you know um, behind the, the desk on the second floor. Their professionalism and warmth have made it truly a pleasure to host our conference here, and we can't imagine having chosen a more perfect venue for our event. We would also like to thank our photographers, Mario Oliveto and Chris Kendig, and our graphic designer, Jerry Kelly, because their beautiful work speaks louder than our words. So even though I'm a curator, I don't curate the collections in Philadelphia. 
we want to thank all the librarians and library staff who made this conference possible, especially the staff of the Kislak Center, the Free Library of Philadelphia, and the Chemical Heritage Foundation. Those librarians and staff include Will Noel, Lynn Farrington, John Pollock, Dot Porter, Betsy Bates, Tom Hessel, Janine Pollock, Caitlin Goodman, Joseph Shemtoff, Ronald Brashear, and James Wilkell. We're really grateful for all the time and energy you put into gathering together the stuff. And I will hold up an old RBS Valentine that's familiar to something, to many of you. Anything worth doing is worth overdoing. <laughs> I'd also like to um, thank our conference volunteers. Um, there are many hands have made light work of running this conference over the past few days, and I really am grateful to everyone who um, responded to my pleas over email. <laughs> In particular, we would like to give a special recognition to Judith Weston, who's not here today, but um, at the very end of her volunteer shift, she dropped all her plans for the rest of the day and accompanied one of our conference participants to the hospital when he was taken ill. Um, and I, I, her, her generosity of spirit is a model to us all. Um, and I also wanted to reassure you that the gentleman who has taken ill is being very well taken care of and is on the road to recoveries. Um, we wish we could give every single one of our volunteers something warm and fuzzy in recognition of the work that they've done. Um, but as a token of our gratitude, we've raffled off one deluxe fleece RBS blanket. Um, <laughs> and we'd like to present it to the person, but I'm not sure she's here. Is Michelle DeMeo in the room? Yeah, well, then we'll um, leave it on her desk when she re returns to CHF on Monday. Please join me in thanking our volunteers. So those are those people who volunteer, and there are some who are conscripted into service, and some of those people are in the room today. Jeremy and Ruth. You've been running around this building, and before you came here, you were running around, and you'll doubtlessly be running around when we get back to Charlottesville. Your work made this conference possible. We could not have done this without you two, and you will now receive gifts. <laughs> and finally, Barbara and I would like to recognize Claire Weaker, our conference coordinator. From booking hotel room blocks and shuttle buses to copying handouts for the workshops, from preparing contracts and payments to painstakingly selecting every single item of food that was catered here over the last few days, she has kept in view both the most critical needs and the tiny details that take things from you know, just good to really great. Her calm, can-do attitude and her excellent sense of humor have sustained us all behind the scenes. We really can't thank Claire enough for all the work she's done to make this conference a success, so please join me in showing her our appreciation. Um, and now, just to wrap up, we invite the president of Society of Fellows in Critical Bibliography, that's Stephanie Frampton, to um, address you and just tell you a little bit about the society, and then we'll depart. Stephanie. 
I'm shaking. I don't know about you guys. Um, So we heard a little from this wonderful panel this morning. Thank you guys for organizing it. The idea that bibliography is an uncompromising commitment to the individuality of things, but I think we are also learning that it is a commitment to the individuality of people. Um, Materiality does not have all of the answers, but it does allow us to ask some of the most important questions. So if you were inspired this weekend, if you were moved this morning, if you are an early career scholar, if you know an early career scholar working at a university, a library, a gallery, a museum, an archive, doing transformative work on texts, images, or other artifacts as material objects, we want you. (laughs) We want your students and colleagues and friends. Please apply to the Society of Fellows. The application is online. It's due November 1st. Uh, And please bring the energy of this weekend back with you wherever you go. It will change your life, and it has already changed the field. So I'll finish by thanking on behalf of all of the fellows uh, Donna C. and Barbara Heritage, whose unflagging service to this field and this community uh, is incomparable. And finally, Michael Suarez uh, for having the vision that brought us all here. So thank you, and thank you all so much for being here. It's just been an incredible experience, I think, for, for everyone in the room. Thank you. So, the November 1 deadline for the Society of Fellows, it's a hard deadline, you've got to make it. But it's also true that there is a concomitant deadline for the Rare Book School Scholarship Program. So there are multiple kinds of scholarships, they're on the website, and if not for you, then for your students, right? So the scholarships are open till November 1. Uh, and you should get your students to apply or you should apply yourselves. Yeah? Yeah. Bye.